sociopolitical issues, one man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. 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 Welcome to YDHTY, the home for the politically homeless and the podcast for those of you who like your politics and colors other than red and blue. If you are new here, welcome. And if you like what you hear today, be sure to follow YDHTY on your podcast player of choice and tell one friend you think might like it too. Now, If you've been following this podcast since the start of the war in Ukraine or prior, you'll know we've been on quite a ride in an attempt to understand the multiple factors that give the U.S. and its allies enormous economic power, the factors that strengthen it, and the factors that could undermine it. And in an attempt to tie a nice bow on all the things we've talked about, I invited my old friend, the Data Monk, to give a nice holistic recap of everything we've been discussing. And longtime listeners will remember the Data Monk from 2020 and early 2021 from episodes such as Eat Yourself Sick Part 2 and Is the U.S. Essentially Planned Economy? Would strongly recommend you check it out if you haven't heard them already. So, how did we tie up? such a complex web of monetary and foreign policy in under an hour, you might ask? We did not. We did not even come close. Instead, what we did is we opened up a whole new can of worms and made things way more confusing, but I'm going to attempt to decipher it in the coming episodes. This will be a good primer nonetheless. It is a wide-ranging conversation, so listen for these words. Debt, deflation, and energy. They all matter. I will be back at the end to explain. If, if you if you just started listening recently, or you started listening, let's say within the last 12 months, you may not be acquainted with my good friend, Mike. The last episode you and I did together was, I think, about a year ago. And that was on Let's see where we are here. Hold on. I'm going through the back catalog. This is because right you've gone big time and you're I'm ghosting time. me now. I've totally abandoned and, and you. And guests, your guests are far more esteemed now than yeah, I am. Yeah, so, that's the problem. Uh, I, I outgrew. Yeah, that's it. Dude. I am, I, you know, in most places, most rooms I enter or, or websites I'm on, I'm the least esteemed person. Welcome to the club. Yeah, so you and I, the last thing, so we talked about McGriddle coin. We talked about crypto. We had our own cryptocurrency based on the McGriddle, which was great. And then the last one we did was June 3rd of last year, which was a follow-up to some stuff I was digging into on agriculture policy. And the lead-up to that one is May 20th, uh, which talks about how our ag policy effectively is killing us in all ways. So that's your your summary. But a year later, that update, spoiler alert, still happening. Still going on, huh? Yeah. So... The war in Ukraine started me down a huge rabbit hole. So we started with the war itself. Instantly, I thought, how is China viewing this? What does this mean for, you know, will China serve as an ally to Russia? Will China serve as a neutral party? Will they serve as a detractor? Like, what role are they going to play? 
and especially like how are they viewing this vis-a-vis Taiwan? Because obviously that's a big question as well. And you know, one of the big discoveries there was that China and Russia and some other parties really are are making efforts to create sort of an alternative system of finance to avoid the power U.S. has to levy sanctions, which then led me to evaluate the dollar status as the world's reserve currency, how it got there, what keeps it there. Last week, I spoke with Anas Haji. If you haven't listened to that, definitely listen to it. Talks about why oil is priced in USD and why that's unlikely to change. And I think it, I think if I got a sense of where you left off, mm-hmm. it basically came around to the dollar is a Hotel California where you can check in, but you can never... That's it is like it is the yeah, absolutely. Like the the entire world is hooked on it. And I think the the thing that I'm looking to explore in our conversation is that you know, over the last but couple months, but even like longer than that, I'd say I've definitely developed the conclusion that the global economy has become dependent on one of three things, which is either the dollar increasing in value, uh, Americans taking on more debt, or both. And the reason for that is that over the last- I don't know if I'd say increasing in value, retaining its purchase power. Re- retaining uh, its, pur- yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, or rising relative to rel- uh, other currencies. Is that a fair thing yeah. or no? I mean, with all fiat currency, it's a little bit like, you know, it's the bear chasing us, right? Like, I don't need to be faster than the bear. I just need to be faster than you. You know, the, if we abuse ours slightly less than everybody else abuses theirs, then it's the strongest one in the room. Yeah, it's, what do they call it? The healthiest horse in the glue factory. And that's right. That's what my dad likes to say. And so, so... That's actually apt. To me, that's the title of the, of the episode. Because healthiest the, horse um, in the glue factory? I think that'll actually be a, almost an interesting way of tying up all of this because that's like the fiat currency versus the biophysical economy. Is the grand unification theory that's going to mm-hmm. tie together a lot of what I think you're thinking about? Oh, and listener, I hinted to this at the end of the last episode that this is where we were going. So this is, this is going to get interesting. So, then you're going to have a series of guests that will be smarter than me and yeah. who will uh, explain it much better. But at least I can, I will be like a bad promo for all the good Perfect. guests that will come after. That's us. great. You're the trailer. So, so <laughs> a really poorly cut trailer. Right. It sort of gives away the movie and doesn't look very good. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's, yeah, that's how right. I think of you. It's like the poster. It doesn't quite look like the people in the movie, but it's close enough. So the other thing I want to, lay the groundwork for with the with the debt issue as well is that and this is something I've said again on this podcast a number of times which is you know the last let's call it 20 years of economic quote unquote growth in my estimation has been fake and it's been debt fueled because if you look it really started with the dot com era where a lot of fake unsustainable wealth was created it that collapsed then it went into the housing crisis where a lot of fake wealth was created through bad mortgages and that all collapsed. And now we've seen this period of economic quote unquote growth driven by kind of another asset bubble. So now we've got a stock bubble. We've got the everything bubble. We've got an everything bubble. Yeah, exactly. There's an everything bubble. And so from what I've pieced together, when we started basically exporting our industrial capacity, you know, when we started offshoring manufacturing to other countries, you know, primarily China was a big one. There almost seemed to be this feedback loop 
created where the U.S. effectively exported dollars, the U.S. exported debt, and that allowed these, that we basically financed those trade imbalances. We allowed those trade imbalances to occur. And that's created an environment of easy money and it's created these asset bubbles. It's, yeah, it's, I mean, you could yeah, say we right? exported the debt. Well, I mean, like a lot of these things, it's sort of how you frame it, right? Mm-hmm. It's like your your energy guest who was on a couple of episodes ago, right? Yeah. So there's, there's no agreement between the US and Saudi Arabia to use the dollar. They just looked at the dollar, decided it was good, and the U.S. guaranteed that they would get, give them a real return if mm-hmm. they produced. So in, in some ways, you know, it's a bit semantic to break that down. So I, yeah. I think it depends a little bit on how you look at it. And one thing I'd say is you could say that we export debt. Mm-hmm. I'd actually also say what we also do is export demand, mm-hmm. which is because the do- our ability to purchase you know goods in dollars and being a large economy with a big market and a, and a consumer that likes to YOLO with every dollar they have, there is uh, a huge opportunity to to sell things or export to the U.S. Yeah, and that has been the the predominant development model for most. I mean, I'm sure a development economist would probably fight me on this, but I'm going to be like, sorry, man, you're just wrong. Um, Mm -hmm. It's basically all of, you know, most of all these models, including China, have really been just what what we used to phrase like the Asian tiger model, right? It was this like, you you start off by just exporting to the US, to the big markets, become a big exporter, and then eventually, quote, diversify away to other things and develop your economy. Mm -hmm. Certainly possible. But that's never worked, right? Like, do you and, have I, an and so when you work? say we export the debt, this, this is just a balance of payments issue, yeah. right? Because when when you export to the U.S., you sell a widget to the U.S., you get dollars back. You can't buy things in your own country in dollars, so you turn it to your central bank and say, "I need my currency," and then they have dollars, so they go and buy treasuries with it. So, like, so the balance of payments just ends up being that they buy they buy debt because we're exporting the demand. So, that, and that's what, this is going to be important because I, I think. The thing that I was going to, we'll get to in maybe in a little bit, I want to follow the thread of some of the things you had, you'd sort of outlined you wanted to talk about. But um, but there is an interesting question raised, and someone with a PhD or something in this could explain it to me, is how on earth we can have still a dollar standard and deglobalize. Because that seems to be an odd conundrum to me because the, that what we used to title the, the Triffin Dilemma is that like the reserve currency has to run a trade deficit in order to have everyone else have access to that currency. So if we start talking about reshoring and deglobalizing, and then that by definition sort of says like, we're not allowing dollars to circulate outside the U.S. And there's a massive amount of trade done in U.S. dollars outside the U.S. And there's also a massive amount of debt that is priced in dollars outside the U.S., so they need dollars to service those agreements. Mm-hmm. So if you're starting to pull that dollar back, I'm probably jumping the gun here. So we should probably like follow, maybe start well, back at the beginning of what you were talking about, what you wanted to start, and we'll come back to this. But this is, is it a, like, it's an important point because global dollar liquidity becomes a really important component. Well, and that's, what, that's kind of what I've been learning as well, is that the, dollar, the dollar's use is also like very cost effective. It's one unit of measurement that everybody can use instead of having to, I mean, this, this gets back to last week's episode with Anas Alhaji, where he talked about how 
you know, OPEC looked at alternatives. And the issue you have is that the administrative overhead in managing payments in multiple currencies or gold or or, or something like that, it, it's just it's way more than you just do pricing things in one unified currency. And the dollar has all the factors that make it useful, which for, again, if you haven't listened to that episode, it's low volatility, it's liquidity, and it's widely accepted. And those are the things. So it's... it's and, and, and pretty much all three of those things, you just uh, are the mirror opposite uh, of McCriddle coin. Oh, it's the mirror opposite. Highly volatile can't be used really for goods and services almost anywhere. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And, ex- and extremely illiquid. Yeah. So. It could be used to buy more dollars. So so the the one the one question I have is 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 getting to the issue that the US has to run a trade deficit, right? The US has to export capital. And the natural side effect of that is that it lowers the cost of lending. It also gives us the power to do things like, you know, respond to the financial crisis with quantitative easing. And yeah. at that point in time, that was an, an issue where the dollar almost seemed to be like the single port point of failure in the global economy. Like if, yeah, we, if the if the if the title of the episode is the healthiest horse in the glue factory, healthiest horse in the glue factory. Yes. And in some ways, this is this is not a dollar thing. This is a fiat currency thing. And so mm-hmm. a fiat currency that is a reserve currency has allowed us to basically consume the world at a faster rate. And it, if you look, if you're a cornucopianist who just believes in that we're going to mine asteroids and fucking put civilizations on Mars and one, you're an idiot, but two, it's then I guess this is not important to you. But mm-hmm. if you are generally, you know, well-versed in the idea that this is a semi-closed system on our planet, that the only thing that comes in is sunlight and everything else kind of just stays here, just gets reordered and moved around. Occasionally, maybe a piece of rock hits it, hopefully not too big enough, too big or it wipes us, but pretty much everything else just kind of that's here, just sort of stays here. We just kind of move it around. So if you understand that, then you'd sort of say all we do is use energy to reorder things all over the place, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you are of the mind that we have some kind of planetary limits, right? So if you are a climate you know, activist, or you are, then you implicitly are, well, even explicitly, saying there's a carbon budget, meaning sort of there's a limited finite amount of, you know, waste assimilation capacity that the planet can handle, right? Mm-hmm. And anyone who's seen pictures of like just microplastic stuff or plastics just floating in the ocean knows that if you keep exponentially growing this, like, I mean, you're, you're just going to go to the beach and it's a sea of plastic bottles, right? So I think like this idea of accelerating consumption is an important one because debt allows you to sort of like pull forward consumption at a faster rate. And to your point, like this kind of fiat currency reserve status that pushes interest rates lower which then actually counterintuitively creates deflation, which we've generally kind of seen, right? Because you add excess capacity to things. China's been basically exporting deflation. You've probably heard that comment made or that headline somewhere yep. before. And that will go on until the system hits some limits. And when it starts to hit limits, it's then that stuff turns from deflationary to inflation. And just so, to make sure, to just yeah. to clue people in on exporting deflation, effectively what that means is that China is able to produce goods cheaper, so 
the cost. Of so that when you go to Walmart and buy your flip flops and keychains, they now cost way less than what they did years ago when you didn't even really need those keychains or probably two pairs of flip flops. But mm-hmm. sure, I mean, as Dennis Miller once said, you know, two pieces of shit for the price of one is still just shit. Yes, <laughs> yes. But I, I think y- y- you bring up a good point, which is, you know, we have used this monetary power to really fund consumption. And, you know, the whole, the whole purpose of, you know, ideally when things are working as they should, right, we're taking that debt or we're taking that money, we're investing that for something that's going to be more productive or that's going to give us a greater return. And I think with, especially with quantitative easing, with the big injection in liquidity the Fed did back at the, in the response to the financial crisis, it, that created an environment where we were effectively, where people were just investing to produce more dollars. So, you know, the, the, the analogy I use is like, you know, money is the carrot and government is the stick in a way. And you've, you have a, a certain amount of incentive that should be baked into a well-functioning system in order to get people to behave the right way. And if you look at what the Fed has done, if you look at the difference between a productive economy and what the Fed has done, a productive economy, you have more carrots, right? This is great. We have more carrots. We're growing more carrots. Everybody has more carrots, right? What the Fed's done is really just kind of like chop those carrots up into smaller pieces. So, you know, now if I made three carrots an hour, right, my three carrots is getting me less than it was before. But if I'm somebody who invests those carrots for more carrots, oh boy, do I have a lot of carrots. Yeah, that's an interesting point because you can look at, so this is where people would argue like the CPI is like the way we evaluate sort of inflation and these things is a little bit flawed because if you look at true like for like goods, just like let's say the price of a ribeye steak Mm -hmm. in 1930 versus now, like has it changed? I mean, it's kind of the same exact thing, right? So- on the one hand, we if we look at sort of price per calorie, right, and this kind of comes back to your agricultural point, then we have, you know, had deflation and like we've been so productive at creating more and more carrots. Mm-hmm. But I could even send you articles that would show that even in sort of lots of fruits and vegetables, you've had declining micronutrient values over time. So really, even though an apple on an apple to apples comparison, mm-hmm. you could see, theoretically look at your like the price of those and say, look how much cheaper they've got, but they've actually degraded in quality over time. So, so the two, this just comes back to your point about like a carrot versus a carrot versus a carrot. But mm-hmm. if the carrots are getting smaller and less nutritious, then are you what have you actually accomplished? Everybody is super curious about the less nutritious apple. And I'm going to avoid going down that rabbit hole. So I'm going to apologize to you listening if you wanted to learn more about this. We have to get back to this if we have time. But there's, <laughs> there's, there's something else I want to ask you. Let me, let me just tee this up for you. Because as it stands, a lot of the economic gains have been driven by easy lending. They've been driven by asset bubbles. The, the question I have for you is, is that, is that the natural outcome of quantitative easing? We're going to see asset bubbles and we're going to see money flow into like 8 million apps that we don't need and and, well, and we're, we're going yeah. to see asset classes emerge or are there policy decisions we could have made to keep that from happening so that's all right that's an interesting framing i mean the short answer is in my opinion and 
it's just mine, but it's that the quantitative easing, while theoretically well-intentioned, distorts price discovery. And if you distort price discovery, you ultimately distort returns on invested capital. Could you, you define price discovery invested, for folks? Well, just like just- that, that you understand that you that you're you're manipulating the price away from what the market would potentially say something mm-hmm. should be priced at, right? Mm-hmm. So either something is priced too high or it's too low. And so yeah. if you think it's too low, you push it up. If it's too high, you're pushing it down things. Mm-hmm. And it's an ugly mess of a process, but the reality is when we have too much of something, we drop the price of it. And when we have too little of something, we raise the price of it, and that causes the production function to respond to those price signals. If you distort price discovery... You distort returns on invested capital. You distort returns on invested capital. You distort capital allocation. If you distort capital allocation, you undermine your own productivity in the long run. That's the chain of logic. Does that make mm. sense? So just to make sure I, I, I understand this. So when we inject extra money into the economy, as we did during the financial crisis, we alter the flow of that money into different assets. And so that money can, for example, flow into stocks. It can flow into Bitcoin. It can NFCs. Flow into anything, <laughs> yeah. And yeah. what that does is that creates the illusion of demand where there is none effectively. So it effectively- Or, it's, or, it's, or maybe there is some, but it makes it seem much stronger than it really is. Yeah. yeah. So it incentivizes investment in areas where that money might not be most productively used. Yep. So, for example, and under sort of a broken window theory, if you've invested in one thing, you can't invest in the other, right? I mean, I think we are all, are all past the idea that well, MMT is maybe dead now. Is it dead? We all agree it's dead. Modern um, monetary theory, yes. So, <laughs> like that, you can't just like print money and have everything you want. That's like is a, the child's view of the world. The yeah. Monetary. Yeah. So again, getting back to to why we're here right now, you know, we we have a situation where your typical productive member of the economy is trading their time for money effectively. The fact that now we kind of have a market that's free of the, or not free, but the, the, the principles of supply and demand are distorted because of, again, this, the, these, the, the amount of capital that's been injected into the system. We not only have like money going in the wrong places, we have people going into the wrong places. And so we have really smart people who might be able to develop a cold fusion reactor or might be a, you know, might be a, a mathematician or might be a great doctor or whatever. And they're all going into finance because all the money is being made, well, finance and tech, because all the money is being made basically shuffling money around effectively. I mean, yeah, I was going to save this punchline for later, but I'll, it seems to fit right there, which is that Peter Thiel sort of summed this up. Yeah. pretty well. And I have some issues with Peter Thiel, but I'll give him credit where it's due. When you make a pithy statement and it's accurate, I'll, I'll quote it. We were promised flying cars and all we got was 140 characters. 100%. This is the wild innovation <clears throat> that we were uh, hoping will save the planet. Well, and, and I think it's, it, it, it's people ultimately chasing money and people ultimately chasing these, these crazy valuations. You know, high valuations on software companies and tech companies make sense to an extent because uh, they are very decoupled from the price of raw materials. Or, yeah, or, and there's a, a whole, I mean, there's a whole sort of esoteric argument we can make here about how, I mean, software is, 
really drives massive amounts of efficiency. So mm-hmm. these have real productive value, right? Yeah. So now we could argue maybe they've been overcapitalized. You have all the kinds of nuanced arguments about that stuff, but I think it's very hard to argue that like software generally as is not is is a like a hyper efficient sort of way of of doing some sources of work. Mm-hmm. Does that, that make sense? And I think that they not to go off on a tangent on tech, but I do think that there are areas of tech that do really help our productivity. I mean now a hundred percent there is. I totally agree. The the headline stories are all like the stuff that just like destroys our productivity, you know, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, so on. But if you look at like AI, for example, if you look at like the idea that a computer can be trained to think, so we now have two brains on something than just one, like that's, you know, there, there's a lot of cool problems that could be solved. Your focus on sort of talking about the dollar and reserve currency and fiat currency and whether the dollar or quantitative easing is a problem. Like all these things are tied up in what I think is actually ultimately a different problem, which is that it's not so much like the dollar versus fiat currencies generally, right? Mm-hmm. But like just the you know neoclassical economic based monetary theory that really is the underpinning of all of the central bank view of the world, has no real ex-ante view of what drives productivity. Mm-hmm. I mean, they'd probably argue with me. They'd say, no, it's human ingenuity. I'm like, okay, so how do you measure human ingenuity? And I was like, well, mm-hmm. we take all the stuff, and then we look at the output, and then uh, what's left over between the stuff and the output is productivity. Okay, so how do we know what's going to produce that excess productivity. Like, well, we let the market figure that out. But then you stepped in and distorted the market. So how do we, how do we know that this end result is going to be the same? Because monetary policy focuses on you know, targeting a, a natural equilibrium growth rate based on an output gap. You know, every time the economy contracts, it's now got an output gap back to its trend line. And the trend line is just based on long-term, the last historical growth. So we take what we did in the past, we extrapolate it into the future and say that's the natural growth rate of the economy. And then every time we dip below it, we have to get back to it. So they just go, all right, well, we need to ease monetary policy to drive it back. Here's the dirty secret. There is no such thing as a natural equilibrium growth rate anywhere in like nature or the universe. Like Nothing grows by itself without inputs. That is like a perpetual motion machine, a self-inflating balloon. I mean, like just nothing does that. You have to have inputs to grow. Inputs allow things to grow to a new level. And then you up the inputs, they grow more. If I go to the gym and eat more protein, my muscles get bigger. If I don't, they atrophy. I don't just stand there and turn into Arnold Schwarzenegger breathing the air. Yeah. I I mean, it just... Like you have to have inputs in order to get to the side. So, and the currencies or printing currencies, regardless of whether it's a dollar or any currency, doesn't create capital. It doesn't create inputs. It's just call on those inputs and, and, and how you move them around and how we value them. So I think that's, that's sort of, to me, is one of the most like 
astonishing problems. We just don't really have a great sense of what allows the economy to really grow. Like, what is true productivity? What does it mean? Mm. I, I would say it's thermodynamic. Like, I mean, and I borrow this a little bit from a venture capitalist. I wish I could find it. I go- I've Googled it. I saw it once. I Googled it a thousand times trying to find it again. I can never find it. So whoever is out there who said this, you're brilliant. It says something like the history of venture capital was about overcoming thermodynamic barriers. And I was like, that is 100% accurate. Or at least it was accurate when we were really, hmm. when we truly were creating productive investments. And to that point, like what you're saying is productivity to me is about how much energy you have available and then how efficiently you turn that into work, mm-hmm. right? And that's to your point about tech and a lot of software, they very efficiently convert things into work, whether it's yep. automation or it's, um, or it's software, you're getting to an end result in a very efficient way. So by definition, there almost have to be productivity enhancing. You know, if we're talking about a system of inputs now, and let's just, let's just start with the financial crisis and work our way to now just to keep things easy. You know, we're measuring output in terms of stuff, but what are the inputs? Is, you know, what are we, what are, what's getting put into that machine? Yeah, I mean, ultimately it's a, the production function, right? It's quote, labor and capital. Mm-hmm. Now, it has no official role. The traditional sort of production functions as an economist would generally kind of look at it. Play, uh, energy plays no explicit role in it, mm-hmm. which is like mind scrambling because literally nothing happens without energy. I mean, nothing. We're not, we're not even breathing if there's not energy, right? As Steve Keen, as an economist, said, labor without capital is a corpse and uh, I mean, labor without energy is a corpse and capital without energy is a sculpture. But yet it has no explicit role in any kind of modern economic forecasting. I mean, you'll probably pick this up with some other people you're going to talk to as well, but it's this sort of misunderstanding of the, the price, cost, and the value of things like energy, right? Mm. When we measure energy as a percentage of the economy, what we're really saying is what is its cost of extraction relative to everything else that we do? Mm-hmm. Right. And then there's its actual value. And like the value, of, say a barrel of oil, if you use the energy equivalents, but there's a bunch of ways you could cut this. Like, but if you used the energy equivalent output of what it would take a human labor to do the work, just the, the caloric work at minimum wage in the US, it would be worth $150,000 a barrel. So basically, it's like it is the economy. Mm. Right. That's that nothing happens without without energy. And that's not, obviously that's not just oil, it's oil, that's natural gas, that's coal, that's uh, nuclear, it's all the other things that drive it. But, but this is like not literally nothing happens without it. So that, that's, that I think is an important point because that's like, that's a crucial input. Some would argue that it's the most crucial input to our sort of the size of our economy. And yet to 99.9% of economists, it plays no explicit role in, in the production function that drives the economy. So they don't look at the consumption of energy. They don't look at the price of energy. They it's, just an, it's just another good, just like everything else we do in the economy. Okay. Help me connect the dots in here. So how should we be looking at it? Like how should economists factor that in? And how should we be looking at energy as a limiting factor in yeah. global markets? And how does that it's, affect, how does the whole monetary policy issue come back into that? There is no one in who makes monetary policy, who understands, I think, energy's central role in the, in the size of the economy. So because of that, we 
anchor to things like equilibrium growth rates and output gaps and these ideas of what the economy should be. And then you gear your monetary policy in order to sort of, quote, stimulate the economy to reach that level. Somebody, somebody wrote this thing it's over 20 years ago now, but it was so present. Like, it was back around the dot-com bubble and when it began to implode and the, and the Federal Reserve immediately started to step in, kind of, you know, if you've stepped into to try to erase this mistake it's going to create new mistakes, which you then have to erase, which is going to create new mistakes, which you then have to erase. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And by trying to kind of paper over them, you're sort of trapped in this thing of constantly having to fight, you know, whatever fire you've started. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I'll go back to the bodybuilder analogy. So, you know, my growth rate as a bodybuilder is my work times my you know, my work times what I'm eating. Plus your energy input, let's plus, say. Plus, I mean, yeah, plus what I'm just eating. Just to simplify it. Yeah. That's it, that's it. Plus my energy input, plus what I'm eating. So if you're like, give me the right diet, give me protein shakes, all that good stuff, I'm going to make killer gains, as they like to say. And now if we if we take that analogy and we talk about the the economy, we're, we're ignoring the input part. We're assuming that there is going to be a steady supply of nutrients coming in. There's going to be a steady supply of the right energy coming in. And in reality, that supply may or may not be reliable. And we're not looking at the availability of oil or the availability of other forms of energy as a limiting factor on the economy. We just assume if people keep buying products from that factory, that factory remains profitable, they'll be able to buy more energy, and then that energy will fuel it. But we're really not thinking about that factor of they'll be able to buy more energy. We're yeah. really not factoring uh, or, that in. Or is any that other thing that they would need to, to, to make that. Material. Right? So, so it's like we've, we've pushed more to, going back to your point about like we've pushed more and more investment into lots of different things that, that are up kind of in the superstructure that takes advantage of infrastructure. Mm-hmm. But we don't, we then haven't really been investing as much in the actual infrastructure yeah. underneath it. And eventually you, that, that, that's a problem, right? Yeah. Let me get to something. There's, there's two other things I want to cover here. Is, we, why our, is it, our map of the world here is like one mile equals one mile. We're, we're trying to cover every single thing. I know, exactly. <laughs> it's dense. I get into these conversations and I think to myself, you know what? We're going to let everybody listening take a breath and recap and kind of like process. And it just doesn't happen. Myself and everyone else, who's been listening it's like we're in like a weekly hot dog eating contest and <laughs> every week we're just cramming more and more hot dogs and uh, someday folks will get a little break but there's just you'll finally be able to digest them yeah, yeah but but right yeah. now just keep keep eating so this is this is a super simple question though which is like why are we seeing inflation now because all economic models would say that injecting tons and tons and tons and tons of a currency into a system is eventually going to result in inflation. And Mm. that hasn't happened Mm. other than, you know, inflation and asset bubbles and so on, but it hasn't happened. That's yeah. So that's, that's actually an important point though, right? Because I think for a while back to the earlier point, like you print this to drive consumption, which drives more debt, which like drives interest rates lower, right? It's Mm -hmm. asset price as, 
interest rates or yields are the inverse of infl- of asset inflation. So as assets mm-hmm. inflated, then yields go down. Um, yep. So you've driven down the cost of, say, borrowing or anything, right? So that creates more capacity in almost everything. Coming back to that original point about China exporting deflation. And so you've had effectively, you know, no reason why goods inflation should really increase mm-hmm. until we've kind of reached a point where, you know, and costs of energy are climbing. And we've sort of, you know, I, don't, I guess I'd say underinvested in some way, right, Maybe potentially in the energy space. And so therefore, we have a supply and demand problem where, you know, functionally crucial good, one that is an input to every single th- other thing that happens. So mm-hmm. it's, I think that's kind of a root cause of what's kind of driving some of that inflation. I mean, it's not dissimilar to what we were talking about, I think, before the episode. I'm saying like the traditional view of the 1970s inflation and that, you know, um, Paul Volcker sort of broke the back of inflation by raising interest rates and and turning this down. And so, yeah, I think that had something to do with it, right? Certainly like slowed consumption to some degree. But we also brought on like, you know, the Alaskan oil fields, which sort of, you know, so we had seen the peak of U.S. oil production and we became more dependent on exports and oil prices started to rise and went from somewhere, I think your your guest even had these numbers, right? It went from like mm-hmm. $250 to $14, I mean, which is $14 oil doesn't sound like much now, but, you know, compared to $250, it's, it's obviously quite yeah. a big change. And so, you know, you had this sort of relentless increase in the price of oil in the 1970s. And so then, lo and behold, we had inflation broadly. And I think then you've had, and then you had a period of large oil fields coming online and, and specifically in the case of the U.S., you had the Alaskan oil fields come online and that pushed it down for a while. But now we've kind of reached a point where a lot of, I think, the, the oil sources that we're looking at or energy sources we're looking at at the margin are higher cost Right, we kind of we worked through some of our lowest costs, and it's just kind of climbing up a, to a higher yeah. cost. Uh, I mean, you were saying before we recorded too that the inflation-adjusted uh, price for oil or the inflation-adjusted average is twenty. Yeah, I mean, and this I'm not I'm just reporting the news, right? This yeah. is just old stuff. If you just look at the long-term inflation-adjusted price of oil in, in today's dollars, it's effectively twenty dollars, literally back to you know the standard oil monopoly kind of thing. Um, so the whole history of the energy industry over that time, the modern energy industry, you the inflation adjusted in today's dollars is about $20 a barrel. But we've yeah. kind of, we've now seen like, you know, U.S. drilling activity like really dries up if it falls down into the 40s. Like we can't make that work at, at a price lower than that. Mm. And that's kind of true of offshore developments too. I mean, all this stuff is just at higher price points than it used to be. Yeah. So we we really covered a lot of topics. We we did we did. I've got one more big one for you. All right. So to help everyone digest, to keep on the the gastronomic theme here, help everyone digest what we've talked about. You know, we've we've really like effectively totally upended the laws of supply and demand with monetary policy since basically two thousand. Let's call it. And certainly distorted them. If it's yeah, not totally di- upended, it's certainly yeah. distorted. And di- yeah. so distorted this distorted the nature of supply and demand. And and in doing so, we've really kind of moved away from the raw materials that make up an economy. 
You know, we've really we've we've looked at again effectively people trading dollars for NFTs and cryptocurrency in the hopes they'll make more dollars, but not really like in and of itself, it's an unproductive asset. That capital has not found its way to increasing productivity, to really increasing the better use of those raw materials. Now, the second part to that is that the environment that allowed that to happen in part was due to the U.S. government's willingness to continue to fund deficits. You know, we've just continuously racked up debt, even in good times. And that's kind of helped that happen. And it's also way too politically attractive to offer government services with no increase in taxes. The situation that the U.S. is in today is way too politically palatable. Like there's no way you could win an election by doing the things necessary to restore some sense of equilibrium. And I feel in a way that you know, we have effectively created a regressive tax on the majority of Americans through inflation, created a regressive tax by reducing the value of their, their labor via chopping up those carrots. Uh, and also that we've created some issues in the global economy, because let's not forget that 2000. 2007-2008 financial crisis was a global crisis. It was a crisis driven by American mortgages that nearly disintegrated. Yeah, and because that's because deficit spending is not too different than than housing demand. In the exactly. Sense again, it's about exporting demand. Right? So this is my, this is my uh, yeah. point. Right? And so if we go back, some of the history we learned earlier on was that part of the reason we had a dollar standard and things are where they are today is because of rampant hyperinflation and almost currency wars that occurred in the run-up to World War II and created some great social instability. I, I feel like we're almost at the end of that with the dollar. But the difference this time uh, is there is one country that controls everything. It comes back to where we started, that dollar standard versus the deglobalization. So because mm -hmm. we export consumption, because it's the reserve currency, because all these things are true, you've got some 70% of global trade or so priced in dollars, and you've got something on the order of almost $10 trillion, $11 trillion of debt outside, non-financial debt outside the U.S. priced in dollars. There is a demand for dollars externally, which means that they consistently want that consumption. So whether we run a deficit or we run a housing bubble or whatever, or we're just buying lots of flip-flops and keychains, we are exporting demand every time we do that. And that allows access to those dollars for this, for this dollarized global economy. What is interesting is we keep talking about all these other players who want to leave the dollar standard, whether it's Saudi Arabia, China, Russia. When are they going to, when are they going to pull out and not use this anymore? This was the oil argument that, as your guest was explaining, the, 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 the energy for rubles, right? So the, the real question is, are we the ones that leave it? Because I don't think you can have a dollar standard and reshore and deglobalize. So if you have this nationalist protectionism and want to pull all the jobs back and no immigrants in and we need factories back in the, and I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I, you can yeah. do that. I mean, I'm not even going to argue the merits of, of doing it or not doing it. That's not the point. But what I do think is that it might be at odds with a global dollar system. 
because you will create a shortage of dollars externally, which drives that globalized dollar system. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please consider leaving it a review. This podcast grows by word of mouth. So here is what I took away from this conversation. Number one is that one way to view the last 20 years of globalization is that America has been exporting debt and China's exported lower prices. We didn't increase production or productivity. We just moved it to some other place. Now, number two is that debt has been used to finance consumption rather than productivity. So we haven't been producing more. We've just been consuming things at the same rate. And number three, in that sense, the only real wealth creation in the U.S. has been moving money around or, or the largest portion of it. And the value of a unit of labor in monetary terms has gotten lower. And so that brings us to number four, the last thing and the most prescient is that this whole dance has failed to take into account the fact that there's only so much that we can consume. And even if the world is willing to finance American consumption indefinitely and the destabilizing effects of income inequality don't turn everything upside down, eventually we eat everything. Now, Mike sent us down a rabbit hole and we have no mode of escape but to dig further down. So. We're going to be diving into how resources and resource scarcity could and do drive current events, not just economic, but also political. I hope you're ready. It is going to be a wild ride. As always, music courtesy of Quellertack, YDHTY's producer and editorial advisor is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Ladios.